It's a real pleasure for me to introduce Ray Hendricks, uh, our speaker for day. Ray is a writer, disability scholar, and photographer from Alabama. Ray's debut full-length collection of poetry, What Good is Heaven, is forthcoming from Texas Review Press in 2024 as the Alabama installment of their Southern Poetry Breakthrough series. Ray is also the author of a series of poetry chapbooks, Every Journal is a Plague Journal, and Fire Sermons, whose verse has won the Keen Prize for Literature 2019 and the Patricia Akhus Award from Southern Indiana Review in 2018. And Ray has also been a Pushcart Prize nominee. Ray's work has been featured in or is in forthcoming in Poetry Daily, American Poetry Review, The Seventh Wave, uh, Poet Lore, 32 Poems, Poetry Northwest, Southern Indiana Review, The Adroit Journal, Tupelo Quarterly, Shenandoah, and elsewhere. As a scholar, Ray has published or forthcoming es essays in Sex and the Supernatural, uh, an edited volume, The Midnight Mass Anthology, Media Commons, and Poetry Northwest. Ray earned a BA and an MA from Auburn University and an MFA from the New Writers Project at the University of Texas, Austin, where they won the Michael Adams Thesis Prize in Poetry. Ray currently serves as the poetry editor of Press Pause Press and co-editor for Disconnect, a disability literature column, and volunteers with the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project. Today, as an OHC graduate dissertation fellow, Ray will speak to us about their dissertation in progress, writing the rupture, representations of invisible disabilities in contemporary U.S. American poetry. Please join me in welcoming Ray Hendricks. Clearly, I'm never busy. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, so I'm going to be pretty casual today. This is very much a work in progress for me. I took that very literally. Um, also, just want to throw out there that I'm, it's kind of ironic that I'm talking about an asthmatic poetics today when uh, I am just getting over my first case of COVID that has upset my asthma symptoms. I will be clearing my throat a lot and maybe a little bit breathless at times, but it was all part of the plan. Um, <laughs> So I will just get started then. Um, thanks for being here, everyone. Um, this is really just to talk about this one portion of my, one portion of one chapter of my dissertation. Um, everything is sort of split into to binary chapters. So this is one section of one chapter of the whole dissertation. Um, and basically what I've been working on this summer it's very much, again, still a work in progress. Um, this actually represents, this talk represents me beginning to sort of pull together all of the things that I've been reading and researching and, and thinking about um, over the summer into something more cohesive. And hopefully that will turn into a chapter. Um, so what I'm gonna talk about is again, uh, one part of my chapter on asthmatic and allergic poetics obviously focusing on the asthmatic section. Um, but before I get to that, though, I think it would probably be better to give you a brief overview of my dissertation at large, just so you kind of get the impulses behind it, get some of the, the theoretical notions that I'm working through. Um, so I'm going to do that, but I also want to note that there's a lot of text on these next couple of slides. That's not the case for the rest of the slides here. Um, it's not really aesthetically pleasing, but I do everything in the spirit of the most accessibility I can. Um, and so for these next two pieces, these next two slides, I really wanted to 
make sure there was an opportunity to read through the things as I was talking because these are my more like theoretical or complex topics that I'm going to talk about. Everything else I'm kind of going to talk about a little bit more casually. Um, so I'm not going to read it exactly, but uh, for some context, my dissertation, as Paul mentioned, is tentatively titled Writing the Rupture, Representations of Invisible Disabilities in Contemporary U.S. American Poetry. And in it, I'm interested not only in reading poems for evidence of these invisible disabilities and moments of rupture, which is something I'll define more thoroughly in a moment, um, but intervening in current disability, disability studies and rhetorics that at present tend to prioritize visible or physical perceptible disabilities um, over those that are not immediately obvious to an outside observer. Um, so the disabilities I've chosen to focus on for this project are uh, deafness and hard of hearingness in chapter one, obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD in chapter two, and this chapter, chapter three, asthma and allergies. Um, these are disabilities that are both literally invisible to the naked eye and also often socially invisible or by which I mean misunderstood um, or misrepresented. So for example, in addition to literally not being outwardly visible, things like OCD and ADHD are pretty deeply misunderstood disabilities um, due at least in part to the way they're treated in the media um, and colloquially. So like they're used to, you say, oh, I'm so OCD to say it, you're organized or say, oh, I'm so ADHD to say you're hyper, but that's not actually what it means. Um, and I argue contributes to their social misunderstanding. Um, similarly, and then more to the point of today's talk, uh, asthma and allergies are not often socially recognized as disabilities, but are in fact actually protected disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. Um, and then finally, before I move on, I want to note that the disabilities I focus on in this project um, were selected autoethnographically, so with a personal connection at the forefront. Um, there's a phrase in disability and in other minority communities, nothing about us without us, and this project is very much following that impulse. Um, the disabilities selected are all disabilities that I have or that I have close personal proximity to. Um, the one that I have more proximity to being deafness, which my mother is deaf and so I'm hard of hearing, but that's kind of the, the proximity area just for reference. Um, and because of this, I believe I can speak accurately uh, and with knowledge and understanding of lived experience. Um, and then finally, this project uses close readings and analyses of contemporary poetry to highlight not only these invisible disabilities, but also to argue in favor of expanding what is currently included in disability studies and literature and ultimately communities. I lied to you, it's the next slide has more text again. Um, I also just wanted to briefly give an overview of how I'm defining contemporary poetry because that's really a broad, unstable category right now um, in literary terms. So while generally people on like the literary internet um, seem, to, seem to define uh, contemporary poetry as starting back towards World War II, um, 1939 to 1945 is the most cited, or are the most cited years I saw. Um, I actually push it a bit further than that since we do get some distinct movements in the decades that follow World War II um, with the beat writers, confessionalists, etc. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. If I, uh, if I had to draw a hard line personally for myself, 
um, which is not a hard line at all, I would probably put the beginning of what I consider contemporary poetry somewhere roughly between 1965 and 1980, um, between the beginnings of the sort of intense portion of the Vietnam War protests and the official, official start of the AIDS crisis in the 80s. Um, and then extending to the present moment. So as you can see, we are here. Um, also, I do want to note, these lines are very general. I just like made this in PowerPoint, so I, they're not, these are not exact dates, so please don't, don't like quote me on this. Like the beat generation ended in like 1962, and I don't know, that's not what it means. Um, just kind of wanted to give a, a trajectory of where I'm coming into the conversation. Um, and then finally, one of the primary characteristics I see in contemporary poetry is this sort of extension of confessionalism or this highly personalized, um, self-informed and self-reflective poetry, this writing about the self and the self's experience. Um, I don't mean this next part in a negative way, but I, a simpler way to think of it might be um, contemporary, poet, contemporary poetry as identity politics poetry. It's very much interested um, as far as we can tell, because again, that's kind of an amorphous category so far, no one has clearly defined when it begins or when it ends, but uh, that's, that's sort of how I view it. It's, it's very interested in talking about the self and relating identity back to the political and social world. So finally, the last, the actual very wordy slide. Um, I promised to talk about this, and so I will now. Um, the idea of the rupture um, that I'm theorizing in terms of invisible disabilities and how they become known both socially and in the space of the poem. So as an overall definition, I'm terming the rupture as, which I've put in bold up here, uh, both the moment at which and the circumstances by which invisible disabilities cease to be invisible. So speaking socially or more literally, this moment of rupture is how an invisible disability moves from a state of unknown to known for an outside observer. Um, or how it breaches containment, so to speak. Um, how a perception of normalcy or normativity in a person is undone. What this might look like, for example, is someone using sign language or not responding to an auditory stimulus, um, someone with OCD performing a compulsion, or more relevant to today, someone with asthma audibly wheezing or suddenly pulling out an inhaler to use. Um, these disabilities become visible or known by way of disrupting a normative status quo or expectation. So in other words, they signal the shift from normal, normal, to different in terms of social observation and convention. And then similarly, in terms of a poetics of invisible disability, this invisibly disabled poem more or less passes for a standard poetic body until that moment of rupture. Um, this can look like non-standard spacing, seemingly random capitalization, uh, odd spellings, or it could be subtler than that, the invisible, invisible disability rupturing the convention of pacing, rhyme, and as I'll discuss today, standard breath. For the poem, this rupture can also be by virtue of giving invisible disabilities a physical, visible body in the body of the poem and can represent an externalization of, of that which is typically internal and uh, imperceptible to the outside. So in short, for both the person and the poem, uh, the rupture is the moment at which the unknown becomes known, at which the invisible disability becomes visible. Okay. 
So one of the poets, uh, I'm going to talk about two poets today, one poem by each, um, both asthmatic poets. Uh, but the first one is Elizabeth Bishop. Um, I wanted to point out too, as I was reading about her, that it occurred to me that today, October 6th, is actually the anniversary of her death. Um, so it feels especially right to kind of remember her today by speaking to and about her work um, and sort of have her creative spirit in the room with us. She's very woo-woo poet of me, I know, but whatever. Um, anyway, as far as I've been able to find, Bishop never really explicitly wrote about her asthma in her poems, um, but she did describe her struggle with severe asthma in many of her notebooks and letters, especially those written the year she was living in Florida, um, where the, <clears throat> excuse me, where the humidity worsened her asthma symptoms pretty significantly. Um, while in Florida, Bishop's personal writings tell us that she suffered from distressing asthma attacks almost nightly, and her symptoms became so debilitating at times that she had to begin giving herself uh, injections of cortisone and adrenaline, sometimes hourly, just so she could breathe. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I also maybe need one of those <clears throat> injections. Um, and while much of Bishop's work is known for its celebration of travel, she also kind of experienced it as a sense of homelessness due to her asthma. Um, she wrote to her doctor in 1948, who was in Maine, I believe, or New York, but uh, in the Northeast, um, that it seemed like as soon as she began to love a new place, her asthma symptoms returned and sort of ruined it for her. Um, not ruined the place necessarily, but ruined her experience of it. Um, so, again, while Bishop isn't necessarily someone I would call a contemporary poet by my own definition, by other definitions she technically is, but uh, I think in the last, or especially in the last few years of her life, um, I do think her poetry is a useful informant or that she's kind of a, a poetic foremother for reading and establishing a more contemporary asthmatic poetics. Um, there are several of her poems that I think I could have chosen for this, but I think this one, titled Oh Breath, um, it's part four of a four-part poem. Um, I think it's one of the better examples of asthmatic rupture in her poetry. Uh, the book in this particular, the book this particular poem came out in was published in 1955, so kind of right on the lower edge of what I'm personally considering contemporary in terms of poetry. Um, so it somewhat works in that sense as well. Uh, I also think it's important to get Bishop's words and her voice into the room. I know another woo-woo poet moment. Um, so before I dive into that though, I'm going to read it aloud unless someone else just wants to. We could do like a whole like classroom thing if you want. Sure. You want to? Sure. Cool. Thanks, Betsy. Mm -hmm. So do you want me to read the whole thing or does anybody else want to trade off with me? I'll read some. Great. Let's see. Uh, so I'll do, uh, I will, my last line will be, I cannot fathom even a ripple. Okay. Beneath that loved and celebrated breast, silent, bored really, blindly veined, grieves maybe, lives and lets live, passes, bets, something moving, but invisibly, and with what clamor, why restrained, I cannot fathom, even a ripple. See the thin flying of nine black hairs, four around one, five the other nipple, flying almost intolerably on your own breath, 
equivocal, but what we have in commons bound to be there, whatever we must own equivalence for, something that maybe I could bargain with and make a separate piece beneath, within, if never with. Awesome. Thank you both. That was beautiful. Um, okay, so the first thing I want to highlight with this poem um, that was just so wonderfully read is the form and kind of what the form does or how it ruptures poetic convention. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about these sejuras or the blank spaces in the middle of the lines um, that I've drawn further attention to with these red brackets just for ease of finding on the screen. Oops. <laughs> okay. Gotta love a, a trackpad. Um, so the sejuras themselves are not necessarily something I would think of as rare or unconventional. Um, you can find these in poetry, verse, as far back as things like Beowulf. Um, traditionally, though, a sejura is a break in a line around a metrical foot and is used to draw attention to that meter or to direct the rhythmic performance of the poem. So while bishop sejuras look conventional, the, the way they operate signals them as a rupture of traditional poetic form. And I'm using that word traditional here, not in the broader like poetic tradition sense, which I think can get a bit unwieldy and amorphous, but very specifically in terms of how devices like meter and sejura have been used in Old English, like Beowulf, and then by other more canonical, well, not the bishops, not canonical, but by other canonical author, authors like Petrarch and Shakespeare. Um, that said, I'm gonna come back to the sejuras, but I first wanna shift gears and just slightly for a minute, look at the meter Bishop uses in this poem. So I think it's also really important to note. So here I've gone ahead and added metrical annotations for stressed and unstressed syllables just to the first four lines. Um, and even if we ignore the sejuras for the moment, it becomes clear pretty quickly that we're dealing with a poem that doesn't adhere to a strict meter. Um, again, without the sejura, this first line is actually in a traditional iambic pentameter. Uh, with 10 alternating stress and unstressed syllables, and that pattern continues for the next seven syllables uh, in the second line. Um, minus three, of course, but even Shakespeare broke his own rules sometimes, so we'll allow it. Um, we won't hold that against Bishop, and uh, we'll say that this in itself maybe doesn't necessarily constitute a convention break because of that, you know, Shakespearean history. Um, what is significant, though, is that Bishop wrote these first two lines very conventionally or with this air of poetic normalcy with this air of tradition um, and then intentionally breaks the poem apart into free verse or blank verse from there um, some of the other lines do have a technical meter to them but none of them really continue through the poem there's not a regular meter in the poem um, so it's kind of subtle but that shift from from a traditional meter into free verse especially when paired with these sejuras, acts as a moment, to me, of rupture. Um, it sort of lulls us into this sort of poetic complacency, this idea that we're, in, we're participating in a tradition of, of iambic pentameter or of regular meter, um, and then just upends that expectation in line three and beyond. So historically, the, or holistically, the poem is also almost technically a sonnet in length, um, though of course not in meter, 
with 15 lines instead of 14, which is just another cute way of subverting that sonic-like sonnet -like expectation that Bishop sets up in these first two lines. So then returning to these sejuras, um, I want to point out too that the, the word sejura comes from the Latin word catara, which literally means to cut. Um, in poetry, it typically means a pause or interruption, which is again often to complement or direct the meter of the poem. But in terms of a musical performance, especially in instruments that rely on the breath like woodwinds and brass, it's most often used as a moment for the players to catch their breath. Um, and given poetry's performative lyric nature and oral tradition, I don't think it's a stretch to apply this musical meaning to a poem, especially when reading a poem aloud. And reading O Breath earlier aloud while honoring those sejuras, they do feel very much like pausing to breathe or to catch one's breath. But again, you know, rather than occurring at what we might consider more natural feeling places to pause for breath, Bishop's sejuras are often interruptions in the cadence of their lines. Um, coming at moments that force a kind of breathing awareness and in turn allow the poem and not the body to initiate and dictate breath. So line two I want to point out um, contains one break that feels almost natural, the sejura acting almost as a comma. So you could read it as like silent, comma, bored, really, invisible, comma, uh, blindly veined, but more often the lines are broken at awkward or awkward places for breath. Um, as if the poem itself might be gasping for breath. For example, um, I'm going to look at lines 3, 7, and then 12 and 13. So 3 uh, grieves, maybe, lives and lets live. Um, I cannot fathom even a ripple. Uh, and then 12 and 13, whatever we must own equivalents for, something that maybe I could bargain with. Um, and reading these lines just now, I, I sort of felt my lungs and my brain protesting the way that poem arrests my breath a little bit, um, kind of stops it in my chest and redirects it with its own will. Um, so even then, though, going back to those more natural feeling comma-like pauses, like the one in line two, it feels significant to point to the fact that Bishop didn't use a comma there. Um, she very clearly uses commas and other punctuation within the poem, so the lack of one in that moment and in moments like the rest of the poem, really, it feels really significant. It feels like that space is very intentionally signaling something else, and that something else, I think, is breath. Um, or like drawing attention to the breath. Formally, metrically, this irregular asthmatic breathing is sort of injected into the body of this poem. Um, signaling that we're experiencing something different from the poetic norm, where the agency of breathing is dislocated from the physical body of the reader to the body of the poem. Oops, there we go. Um, finally, before I move on to the next poet and poem, I do want to briefly touch on this poem's contents. And to do that, I want us to imagine for just a moment that we don't know that Elizabeth Bishop was an asthmatic. Um, if we don't, this poem could be about many things. Um, it could be about grief or some other intense feeling like longing for a lover. Um, this thing that uh, in line five moves beneath that loved and celebrated breast, the thing in line five, not the first line that I wrote or that I quoted. Um, but it seems to have its own will. It grieves, it lives and lets lives, it passes bets, etc. 
Um, and given some of the other signals in this poem, like the description of hairs on a chest, that thing may very well be love, the poem potentially about the breath of a lover. But this is another way that asthma, I think, ruptures this poem and many of Bishop's other poems, even if not explicitly, um, the presence of asthma is there, whether we know it or not. Um, we can read the thing that moves beneath the chest as love or as asthma, and there are certainly markers in the poem's language that easily feel more sinister, as in line five, where the something moving but invisibly and with what clamor. Um, asthma externally is invisible, but does often move with a clamor, like wheezing or coughing or the fuss of pulling out an inhaler or taking an injection. Um, so just as in the physical body, asthma likewise moves stealthily in the body of this poem, um, silent until that moment that it isn't. And just for the record, I don't believe in capital A about poems. So if you interpreted this poem differently than I did, um, that's totally fine. I'm just giving you one example. Okay, the second and final poet and poem that I want to touch on uh, is Poem for Asthma by Matthew Rohr. Um, unlike Bishop Rohr is very much a contemporary American poet, um, still living, still writing, doing what he does, which I don't really know what he's doing, but he's teaching in like Michigan, I think. Anyway, uh, because he's contemporary, I'm actually not gonna spend a lot of time on his biography and background information. Um, and also because he does write very explicitly about his asthma in his poem. So there's not really a need to dig into it in the same way that there was with Bishop because clearly his poem, Poem for Asthma, includes his asthma in his poem. So unless, again, someone else wants to, I will just read this poem really quickly. Does anyone want to read it? I'm totally happy to read it. I'll just read it. Um, poem for Asthma. Hold on while I do a breathing exercise. I am just paying attention to myself, or the universe is vast, and the universe is imperfect. I stop what I'm doing and look right at it. I say, Doc, is this thing going to kill me? He pronounces it asthma. A voice calls me from a tower before sunrise. Or in a terrible panic, I bite through my own mouth and am pinned to the floor. I am clubbed in the head by a wintry cloud and pulled bodily from my dream. A tree tries to warn me of the wind, independent of the wind. Oh, absolutely, man, is my answer to everything. <laughs> I love him and I love this poem. Okay, so as with Bishop's poem, I kind of want to begin with a brief look at punctuation and sejuras, or more specifically, the overwhelming lack thereof in Rohrer's poem. Um, instead of using sejuras as a marker or awareness of breath uh, in poem for asthma, there is still breath signified by space, or um, in this, these lack of end stopped lines, for the most part, the, obviously line four has an end stop with the question mark, but for the most part, this lack of end stopped lines, um, what I'm reading as a sort of unimplied or implied cetera. Um, so this short, you know, the short poem, this short poem, contains few commas, no periods, only one end stop. Um, and then again, Rory uses enjambment to signify a pause or breath, or more realistically, given the poem's title, breathlessness. His non-end stopped lines force a kind of breathing awareness similar to Bishop's Sejuras. Um, 
requiring the body, not punctuation, to initiate the pause, making the blank space at the end of each line feel precarious almost, especially as there seems to be no pattern or indication as to which lines continue from the one before it or which lines are standalone. Um, line two, for example, flows into line three. I am just paying attention to myself or the universe is vast and the universe is imperfect. There's this continuation there. Um, but line three doesn't follow that same logic. It, sim it seems like there should be something stopping it before we move on um, into this, uh, into line four. I say, Doc, is this thing gonna kill me? After I look right at it. Um, like Bishop Sejera's, this isn't something that automatically signals difference. And this kind of formal choice is fairly common in a lot of, especially more modern or contemporary poets. Um, W.S. Merwin comes immediately to mind with his basically this, but he tends to use more uh, lowercase letters at the start. Anyway, point is, is it's not initially immediately something that stands out as odd or as a, a rupture, so to speak. Um, but also like Bishop's poem, the form gives way to that kind of arrested breathing invoked by the poem's title which brings asthma to the forefront and suggests that this poem that is for asthma is written with an asthmatic breathing aesthetic. Um, as with asthmatic breathing, the pattern of pauses at the ends of these lines is irregular and largely unpredictable. Um, another example of this arrhythmic breathing in the poem occurs in lines seven and eight. Um, I am clubbed in the head by a wintry cloud and pulled bodily from my dream. Um, in all instances before line eight, the verb follows an I or an implied I that is performing it. I do a breathing exercise. Um, I am just paying attention to myself. I stop what I'm doing. I say, I bite. I am clubbed in the head by a wintry cloud. But in line eight, the I is dropped almost as if there wasn't enough breath in that moment to continue saying it. Um, the being stays the same, but the level of urgency changes, almost like a gasp at that moment. like. I am clubbed in the head by a wintry cloud and pulled bodily from my dream. It sort of, it, it changes the rhythm and the, the way that we experience that line in this poem. Um, and then the next thing about this poem that I wanna draw attention to, I am looking at the time also, uh, is this first line and especially how it relates to the remainder of the poem. So by opening the poem with hold on while I do a breathing exercise, Rohr initiates the poem rather unconventionally, not with action or a call to action, but with this inertia. We must wait for the speaker to continue his breathing exercise before we continue through into the poem. Or at least that's what we think is gonna happen as readers, what he's implying is going to happen. Um, but in line two, the speaker then turns inwards, not outwards, not towards us, the readers. He turns into himself. I am just paying attention to myself. But then, almost immediately, we pivot back out. We are pushed out, or the universe is vast. Oops, I did not mean to do that. I'm sorry. Or the universe is, uh, I lost my place. I'm so sorry. The universe is vast. Um, by opening the, that's, I already said that. I'm looking at my notes. I'm so sorry. Um, there we go. We're not waiting for the breathing exercise at this moment. We are in the breathing exercise. We are doing the breathing exercise with him. The poem is the breathing exercise. Everything after this first line isn't a poem, but a breathing exercise. Um, 
and we're doing it again with him. We're moving from internal to external over and over. Um, the universe is vast and the universe is imperfect. I stop what I'm doing and look right at it. So we've got that I stop and look back out at this exhale of the universe again, back to the present, to the person, to the inhale. I say, Doc, is this thing gonna kill me? Back to the external, he pronounces it asthma. And then over and over, we have this breathing motion happening in the poem as we move from the internal to the external over and over and over. Um, the most significant, I think, and coolest personally, uh, instance of this is in line nine where the tree and the wind, to me, become these representatives of lungs and breath. If you think about what a tree looks like, its roots and branches mirror the alveoli, the veins in a lung, and this wind that it warns of, maybe breath, um, can't necessarily be expected or relied upon. It warns of wind without, or independent of wind. You're thinking about your asthma even when you're not having an asthma attack. You're always anticipating this wind, this strange breath. Um, so asthma, again, in the lungs occurs independent of the wind, um, the breath, it simply, the breath is simply what signifies its presence, the presence of asthma. Okay, so some final thoughts to close us out. Um, like Roar, I want to move us from this interior asthmatic focus and connect it back to one of the larger impulses and theoretical through lines of my dissertation. Um, one of the things I haven't talked much about, I briefly mentioned it at the very start, but uh, is this rethinking of disabled poetic embodiment to include um, a poetics of disembodiment. So in both of the poems that I read today, or that we read, I should say, uh, in their own ways, Bishop and Rohrer dislocate or rupture conventional poetic agency. They both allow the poem to act as a disembodied version of their own lungs, shifting the agency of the breath and breathing from the literal body to the body of the poem. Where Bishop does this more literally, I think, in the form via her use of Sejeres, Rora does it by way, predominantly, of a command at the start that moves us from the space of the poem to one of a breathing exercise and maybe even a medical setting. This poetic rupture via the exchange of agency is something I see happening in my other chapters as well. Um, for example, in my chapter on deafness, one of the authors figuratively deafens the reader by including illustrated signs, sign language, hand symbols, um, alongside his text. And what's even more significant about that, I recently learned, is that those signs are not purely invented signs, but they're a sort of amalgamation of Ukrainian and Russian sign language and ASL. Yeah, it's amazing. But, um, <laughs> but he puts those, these weird amalgamated translations of signs next to English standard text. And so it's this weird kind of like we are being deafened. He's taking that agency of hearing from us, um, if you are a hearing reader, of course. And even if you're not the agency of translation, because these signs are literally untranslatable. Um, but then another example in my chapter on OCD and ADHD, an OCD poet forces the experience of OCD ruminations on the reader by including the same line over and over, but changing it just slightly every time so we never quite find our way out of it. We keep thinking, oh, but this one was different, so the next one will be different. And then it's just like one word switched around or one word omitted or one word added. This kind of rumination is forced upon us. We are stripped of our agency to not think about it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really cool. Um, so I, I, I am seeing this kind of through line of embodiment towards disembodiment, this shift of agency all through my chapters um, and all through this dissertation. Um, 
So I kind of just want to stop here and conclude by thinking about this phenomenon of invisibly disabled poets and poems rupturing our own agencies as readers, um, especially in terms of what I'm calling a crip poetics of disembodiment, um, which allows for the intangible to construct its own logics and narratives and make its own rules that a physical body can't always offer. Um, and yeah, that'll, that'll about do it for me. So thanks for listening. Questions for Ray? I've got one. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I don't know what the right term, representation or translation. Mm -hmm. So the way in which um, the physical disability of the poet gets translated or represented mm -hmm. into the poem itself. And you've spoken convincingly about a, a, a couple of examples of that and I'm interested in um, the way that agency and the way you're using agency so um, the way that you in, um, grant to the poem a kind of agency to do this right. work I'm interested in the role that representation or translation plays in this enabling of agency of the text. Does that make any sense? I that think is to so. say, you know, how does the poet translate the physical disability in such a way that gives that agency mm -hmm. from the poet to the poem? Yeah, okay. Um, no, that's a great question. And it's actually one that I've been thinking a lot about. I, I do think I think for myself, it's first a question of form, what form the poem takes. Um, I think it's more obvious and evident in poems by poets with, with physical disabilities, with external disabilities, or visible. I think external is maybe not the right word to use, but externally perceivable. Um, one of the poems that I'm thinking of immediately that, I, that reminds me of that is uh, by Leila Shuti. She's a um, a Tunisian poet, uh, Tunisian-American, she has very visible surgery scars from reproductive uh, cancers and things like that. And one of her poems about that and about her scars is shaped like the poetry scar. So that's one very literal example where it's like, if you don't know this about her and you'd read this poem, you're like, that just, that looks weird. And it looks kind of like a scar on the page. And so there's this very literal movement into like strange forms. Um, in poems like these, I think just looking back at, uh, you know, Bishop's poem, for example, those those sejuras kind of visually turn the poem's body into its own body. It puts her breath into these moments, and then it's no longer her breath, right? Because anyone can read this poem at this point. We can, it, that breath belongs to that poem now. Um, she may read it different, or may have, rest in peace, but uh, she may have read it differently every time she read it, because asthma is in flux, for example. The poem is going to live that way forever, unless she changes it. But at this point, sorry, RIP, she can't change it. Um, so it's going to, that poem now has its own agency and its own breath, its own kind of lungs and rhythms that we don't get to change, I think. Um, in terms of translation, I, I don't have, I mean, very literally, I haven't read a lot of works in translation 
do you mean language or no, just like no, translating? Sorry, that was okay, just sorry. translating the physical disability okay, into okay. the poem. I didn't mean it in a technical sense. Gotcha. Okay. Did, did that answer? Yeah, yeah. I, can I have a follow-up? Please. So you mentioned, um, completely understandably, the kind of agency of readers mm-hmm. to read poems in various ways. Right. And if I'm interested in the, the possibility that the invisible disability remains invisible to a particular reader. Oh, yeah. That's like my favorite thing about this is that realistically, if you're not someone who does like a lot of like biography digging, like if you just pick up a book of poems and by Matthew Rohr and read it and you don't read Poem for Asthma, it works like asthma. Like you don't know that he has asthma. You don't, even if you, if, if you never see the rupture happen for yourself, even if you never recognize it, it's still there. And I think it's so cool how this, I keep thinking of it in my head as like stealth disability, like a disability <laughs> sniper. Um, I play a lot of video games. So I think in terms of like that, but I think it's so cool how, yes, we do have an agency as readers, but we also don't get to take the disability out of a poem just because we don't recognize it. Um, and I think that that's one of the, it's an intangible thing with this dissertation and this project, but I think it's such a cool and important thing. And I'm actually giving a talk next week on one of my own poems that is from my disability centric chapbook that no one ever thinks is a disabled poem. And I'm just like, no, this is a disabled poem. You just don't recognize the disability in it. Um, and I think that there's, like with, I think I think of it sort of similarly to the way that uh, bilingual poets will write in, they'll put a line in their poem in Spanish or in Mandarin or something, and they don't translate it. That's not for us. That's that's our work that we have to do as readers. And if we don't do it, it's on us because we miss out on part of the poem. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that it's there, I guess. So I, I also don't know if that answered your question. No, no, but, really good answer. Thank you very much. Uh, can I just like to sort of fix up on where Paul is? And first off, I this pairing you offer is, is super brilliant. Oh, thank and you. I'm sort of intrigued even by your title and drawn to the whole project in that way. Thank you. But picking up on the question of readership, I love that this notion of rupture that you're describing in the project seems key, and I sort of get through what you're doing, what you mean by rupture. But I was curious to kind of think some of the implications because and, and mm-hmm. you touched on it just <clears> now, but it's. It's question, is, is rupture a moment of recognition of a disability? And then what's at stake in that recognition? So I was, on one level I was thinking, are these poems in turn a symptom of Bishop's asthma or Roar's asthma? And then we're reading almost symptomologically that mm-hmm. the rupture is then the diagnosis. Oh, I get it and I understand the poem. Right. But if that's the case, if rupture then functions as a diagnosis or a recognition mm-hmm. of a disability, then there's the question of where is the poetics in the project? Is it then is there something poetry does to the medical discourse of diagnosis that might open up in a different direction? So I guess it's just sort of to hear your thoughts playing with essentially if you were to articulate what is the particular revelation that rupture as opposed to diagnosis offers for for a readerly practice? No, that's a fantastic question. Um, And one that I haven't thought a lot about yet. So this is good. This is good as I go forward. Um, My initial gut reaction is to say it's the rupture could be the diagnosis, but it isn't always. It could be the symptoms. It could just be this moment where we as readers go like, that feels different. That seems not 
like what I was expecting. So just this kind of shift in expectations that sim not symbolizes, but sort of signals that something is not the same as me personally, or you know, as whoever you are reading the poem, um, or if like me, as I I was reading Elizabeth Bishop before I knew she was asthmatic, and I felt myself represented there. So that's what I think is the most at stake there is like people with asthma, people with OCD, I, this is maybe gonna sound bad, but I actually kind of don't care what the normate thinks. Like I kind of don't care what yeah. non-disabled people think about disabilities and about disability poetry. Um, We're so often reduced to our diagnoses that I'm really hesitant to make diagnose, a diagnosis kind of the, the rupturing moment. It could be, um, could be one of them, especially for someone who who maybe is familiar with something like asthma, but hasn't, doesn't have it themselves. So maybe they say, oh, this poem for asthma, he's an asthmatic, this changes the way I read these poems. So that could be one way. Um, but for me, the, the real stakes of this are for the disabled community, the disabled poets who haven't yet seen themselves represented in poetry and who get this moment of whether or not they know that Elizabeth Bishop was an asthmatic, they read Oh Breath and they feel themselves in it, whether it's like, totally cognizant or not, I think that there's this moment of connection that poetry allows um, in this way that can medicalize it, but also removes the medical aspect from it and makes it a purely like personal relational thing. I don't, I don't know if that's your, an answer to your question, but it's what I've been thinking about. So, thanks. Hi, Trace. Mine's the sort of follow-up or flip side of those, and you know how much I I uh, love reading your poetry and your uh, writing about poetry. I mean, you write about it so um, subtly and deftly. Deftly, deftly. Um, uh, and I was, it's, it, of course, makes me think this, you know, suddenly in my own field, my own area, the consumptive poets that I work mm -hmm. on who were struggling with breathing and, you know, coughing up blood, uh, Keats and Emily Bronte, and how that might be marking, you know, some of their poetry, be a way of sort of thinking about it. On the flip side of that, though, I was thinking about a poet who was doing very much ruptures with breath, which is Jared Manley Hopkins, who's mm -hmm. thinking an entire sort of poetics of the caesura, of the sigh, of the exclamation, uh, an entirely different um, sort of uh, uh, metrics and prosody devised around that, but right. who doesn't have asthma, <laughs> doesn't right. have any of these conditions. And so I'm wondering why we, uh, you know, is there a way to, it, obviously it's important historically and personally to sort of tether this to the conditions. Right. But I'm thinking, you know, one way of thinking about uh, Hopkins poetry, it's a, you know, call it an asthmatic or, or, I mean, people called it disabled poetry because it was right. so irregular precisely around breathing. And so I'm wondering what, you know, how we just say, well, he wasn't a asthmatic, so we don't include him, or does he anticipate a kind of asthmatic poetics um, uh, in spite of his um, right. able breathing condition. I mean, he had another other condition, neuroses, but breathing wasn't one of them. So I'm wondering how you think about that. So. My gut reaction to that question is to look at uh, Tobin Sievers and disability aesthetics and just to, to think about how non-disabled poets have been using disability, and writers and artists and musicians have been using disability as sort of a metaphor or as an aesthetic um, forever. So but that's even if they don't think of it as a disability, I mean, he thought right. of it as a richer way to uh, to access mm -hmm. language, as it were. Right. You know. So he, yeah, he didn't. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean necessarily that they said, "Oh, I'm going to use like a wheelchair user in this," right, but they right. look at like 
like Picasso, like a strange body. I think that, that that's kind of a sort of disability aesthetic without mm. necessarily calling itself that. Um, that's my kind of gut reaction is that there's something there happening I, that I haven't thought fully through yet. But my other reaction is that, yeah, why not? I mean, anyone can become asthmatic at any time. So he, he, or maybe not asthmatic, but everyone has breathing issues sometimes. So even if he wasn't necessarily thinking about that, um, I'm thinking too of uh, projective verse, uh, Charles Olson. That's a whole thing just about the breath in poems. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I'm thinking through it live. So nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I will put it in my notes. Thanks. Yeah, uh, feeding off this, I wonder um, if it might be possible to identify the way asthmatic and non-asthmatic poets use Sejura different. One can get down to that level of specificity or not. That might be a fun question. Yeah. And to think about somebody like Hopkins or these other poets, E.E. Cummings, as, as are the counterexamples. Do they show us anything? Right. No, that's, a, that's another good question and something I actually have been thinking about a little bit, um, not specifically with Hopkins or E. Cummings, but um, with some of my OCD poets, they use sejuras very, very liberally. And in those, in that chapter, I talk more about how that sejura is this, it's still an arrest, it's still like a, a moment of breaking apart, but it's a more neurological break than it is a breath break. But that's a really interesting, like, how do these things line up? How do they differ? How does that sejura, how is one sejura a neurological, a synapse break, and how is one a breathing break? Um, and maybe another one not connected to those things at all. Right, a break for sign language that we don't get to see because it's happening. Yeah, or, or maybe a non-disabled sejura that is it actually formally operating differently or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. I think for me, as I've been, as I was researching for this chapter, the, the non-disabled sejuras that I came across were more metrically balanced on either side. They there didn't, you go. Ding, yeah, ding, they ding. didn't, um, <laughs> they didn't, I mean, it's not always the case because we're also in this moment of like, part of contemporary poetry is this like high experimentation thing. And so people are doing all kinds of shit out there right now. Um, <laughs> and I'm here for it, but like, there's a lot happening. So I think that it's a little bit difficult yeah. in this, in our current moment to pinpoint that, but for the most part, these sejuras that I've come across have some kind of like either this section and this section relate to each other in some way very directly. So even if it's not metrical, it's thematic, or it is like kind of a metrical mirror for each other. But I mean, there's there's exceptions, but yeah, something to something I've been thinking about. Thank you for asking. Yeah, four minutes. Anyone want to like throw a tomato or something <laughs> or like boo? <laughs> Okay. Um, so since this is brand new work and mm -hmm. work in progress, what kinds of feedback would you like from us? What would you like to know? Um, <laughs> my, again, gut reaction is if it makes sense, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm explaining what I'm trying to do well enough or in clear enough terms, um, I, I'm a little bit resistant to using things like jargon. I believe in like writing accessibly and like talking accessibly, but I know I fall into that sometimes. So if there are if there are moments that I need to explain more clearly or with less academic language or less, you know, highly specialized language, that would be something interesting for me. Um, 
majorly just if this like if you see how this asthmatic thing is working with the rest of the through lines of the dissertation that's that's my my big question sorry some of that was very like committee specific because betsy's on my committee but <laughs> i don't think you are a journey writer at all oh cool no. thanks no. i try really hard not to be well, and you i mean whenever you use a technical term you take the time to define it that's what you're supposed to do so that people who don't know those terms can learn them. Um, cool. No, that, I think <clears throat> that particular anxiety can let that one get. Okay, love that. not a problem. <laughs> I think it fits really well with your, I mean, the parts of the dissertation that I read and the way you present it and the way you presented, you know, your job letters and you have a, a really coherent and distinctive, an incredibly distinctive, I mean, I don't think anyone uh, reading this will not remember the kind of formation that you're sort of developing. It's, that's really, really compelling. Thank you. Yeah, I also was kind of envious listening <laughs> to hide a little bit behind theory and other people's voices. And I was like, want to, like I don't want to ask you the question of like, can I see your <laughs> list of references? Oh, sure. But um, because you were doing such a beautiful job of Thank you. speaking. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. But you're also welcome to see my references if you want to. I didn't put them on like the. No, it's good. If you write down your email, and I'll send you the list. Um, thank you. That's that's very kind. I think Ray, the key thing is the strength of the close readings. Yeah. That's oh, the you. thing that makes it. That that carries the day. It's like if you didn't do those close readings in the way that you do, I think. It, your auditors would be much more skeptical, but your close reads are very persuasive. Yeah, thank you. It's my like one talent. So uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think that I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I think you know you have a way of um, hitting that switch so that there is a kind of I mean my sort of early dubiousness about well people poets always play with breath and they mess with breath and breath is the you know and so I'm like well you know this is the you know definition perfect this um, and, and then suddenly you do the readings and it's like the switch like okay I see that um, and so it, that's I think the best way to have a, a provocative thesis that then hinges on those uh, readings. Thank you, appreciate that. And in fairness, I was also nervous about that because like I'm honestly kind of tired of like the the breath like love Charles also but I'm kind of tired of it. Um, so this was, I really wanted to get into like the breathlessness. We never talk about being breathless. We talk about like how you're talking and not what happens in the silence between. So that's, yeah, that's what interests me. And like wheezing, so, <laughs> you know. But yeah, thank you. Well, if there are no more questions, please join me in thanking Ray Hendricks.